0: first reading today is from hebrews chapter 1 starting at verse 1 long ago at many times and in many ways god spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he all he created the world He is the radiance of the glory of god and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the power word of his power after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And the second reading is from 2 Timothy, um, chapter 3, starting at verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the right, sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry.
1: Good morning, folks. Welcome to Wagga Evangelical Church. If you're new or visiting today, it's a special welcome to you. Um, hope you're here for the, not just the first time, but the first of many times. Um, my name's Tim, I'm one of the pastors here, and as Hannah read for us there, we're going to be hanging out, well actually, we're going to be hanging out in a couple of those passages, a few more of those as well. But, um, so if you've got a Bible, please have it at the ready. If you don't have a Bible, go and borrow one from at the back. If you don't own a Bible, congratulations you do today. You can go and grab a Bible and write your name in it because it is yours. We want you to have God's Word at your disposal all the time. Um, how about I pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll rip in. Let's do that. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for today. We thank you for the ability to freely gather under your word, not to sit over it, but to sit under it, to help it, uh, to, to allow it to read us, to change us, to transform us, that we might know you better, that we might love you more, and we might be um, grateful for everything you've done for us in Christ. Uh, we just pray for this new year as, as school, the new school year kicks off as all the different programs uh, start to um, build up for the, for the year and for these new series that we'll be preaching through. We pray that you would um, be with us, guiding us by your spirit to um, accept what is true and drop what is false. And we pray it for our good and your glory. Amen. Uh, as I mentioned, we are starting uh, well, we're starting a couple of new sermon series actually this week. Um, there will be two different series that will sort of be running parallel with each other or intermingled, if you like, between now and Easter. Um, the second of those is the Purple Passages series. There should be a slide for that. The little tagline for that is, Scripture that every Christian ought to know and every non-Christian needs to hear. Purple Passages, it's that idea of here's a really nice little uh, Easter egg, if you will, Here's a nice little gospel, uh, rich, saturated section that we really want to be able to nail down. It's, it's helpful for Christians as we consider what we believe and why. It's helpful to be able to share with um, people who don't yet know Christ in a saving way. Um, the guys who are in our preaching group are going to be bringing that to us, which is a really exciting good thing. I'm so encouraged. I feel so um, supported and encouraged by that, and I hope you also will. Uh, Jeff Ward's going to kick that off for us next week. Uh, from It's on your outline, John 14. John 13. And 14. But anyways, uh, today though we're starting the other series, uh, it's a sermon series called Honest Our Statements of Belief and I've titled that First Things First. It's a topical series, a topical doctrinal series. What that means is that rather than sort of working through a, a particular book of the Bible and dealing with whatever subjects or whatever doctrines or whatever principles are raised in each passage, which is what we do 90% of the time at WEC, it's what actually I'm convinced of is the best for helping people understand God's Word as a whole. Rather than that, we're going to do a series where we start with the topic. We start with the doctrinal statement about what we believe here at WEC, And we're going to look at, biblically, why we believe that, which means we are going to be dig- digging into the Old and New Testament to help get the, the overall Bible's overall teaching on that subject. Um, and in this series, we're going to t- cover doctrines or uh, you know, statements of belief on the Bible, that's today, God... Humanity, sexuality and marriage. I'm going to attempt that in one sermon, bring a packed lunch. Um, we're going to do a doctrine of Jesus, of the Holy Spirit, of, of church. Seven, seven sermons in this series as we sort of dig into what the Bible's got to say on those, on those doctrinal uh, positions. And I want to say actually also up front, it's really, why it's really good to do a series like this. In fact, we aim to do it every about five, five-ish years. Because a series like this has the, the really added benefit of helping to clarify what we believe and what we teach here at WEC. And not just clarify what we believe and what we teach, but why we teach and believe these things. And more importantly, what difference that will make to you, to you personally and to us corporately as a church. And it's a good thing to do. If you're new or visiting, in fact, it's a great thing to do. It'll help you get a bit of an insight into what we're convinced matters most. That's why it's called First Things First. But it's also um, good for us if you've been here for 2 or 10 or 20 years. It's always a good thing to do regardless of how long because it becomes a recalibration point for the rest of us. It's a bit like hitting the zero button on the kitchen scales, you know, the, all the bathroom scales. Make sure you do. You hit the zero at the beginning. Or like an orchestra, you know, everyone tunes from middle C. Here's middle C, it's the, it's the calibration point, tune from there, Max, you're a little off, sharpen up, you know? <laughs> that sort of stuff. A series like this is designed to make sure that we haven't drifted from our biblical moorings on these issues, to make sure that we're all starting the new year on the same foot, singing from the same song sheet, convinced and encouraged of the same truths, true truths on important issues. And and actually, it's important to note that they need to be true truths. We'll come to that in a minute. Well, no, actually, let me do that now. It's important that we actually know what you believe, it really does matter. Doctrine matters. It's a funny word, but it's an important concept. We had a a guest preacher a couple of weeks back, if you were here, Al Stewart. Uh, He came and spoke from uh, 1 Timothy 4. I'm not sure if you picked it up when he was preaching, but in the passage that he was speaking from, the significance of right doctrine was given the highest place of importance. Have a look at it here, 1 Timothy 4.16. Paul charged Timothy as a leader and a teacher in the church. He said, verse 16, Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, do you hear how important doctrine is? you see how crucial right beliefs and thoughts actually are? Make no mistake, when it comes to God and matters of God, it's a salvation issue. It's a, it's, you'll save both yourself. It, this is of this is massive importance. And really, actually, that makes sense. That ought to be ringing true for us. Because right feelings about God and right responses toward God in the way we live must first be based on right thoughts about God. Do you understand that? Right feelings and right responses or actions must be based on right thoughts about God. To have certain feelings about God and to act in certain ways towards him that are not based in the truth of who he is, that's idolatry. That's a religion of your own making. That's worshipping a God created in your own image. That's neither wise nor safe, despite the fact that it's wildly popular in our culture. Doctrine matters because right thoughts leading to right feelings and right responses are of eternal consequence. You've got to get that up front. So suspend any idea that a doctrine series is just you know, aimed at theological nitpicking. <laughs> We're not doing that. We're not trying to theological nitpick. We're doing this for God's honour and salvation's sake. We've got to have that clear up front. This is the reason we do this sort of thing. But it also leads me to want to actually acknowledge and point out some of the limitations of doing a sermon series like this because when it comes to, let's be honest, when it comes to the doctrines of God or humanity or the Holy Spirit or any of those things I mentioned before, by nature these, comp- these subjects, these doctrinal issues are so complex, so deep, so colossal that by definition the sermons that I preach are going to be incomplete. In fact, we could sit here all day and all night for actually all year you know, food stops and toilet breaks, uh, you know, we'll do that. But we could do that all year and we wouldn't scratch the surface of any of these subjects. That's the truth. In fact, I've said that before. It's why eternity is such a, uh, such a long time. It's the exact amount of time that you need to know God in his entirety. Eternity is the right time frame to get to know God in all his magnificence and we will never plumb the depths. we Will never cease to marvel at his magnificence. Can you imagine that for a second? I mean, just a little thought experiment. Imagine that concept of of a God who is so enormous that every day you are spending marvelling and being lifted even higher in in, in glory, honour and praise to him for his brilliance as your heart swells even fatter than it was yesterday. That's the God we're talking about here. That's why he's worthy of all glory, honour and praise. It's why doctrine matters. It can't just be a a dead boring orthodoxy. It's got to lead to something. It's got to lead to doxology, glory, worship of him who is worthy of it. So up front, no, I'm not going to be able to say everything I could say on all of these doctrines. Rather, what I've tried to do here is focused on the the issues of greatest significance from each of our carefully worded statements of belief that either get to the heart of the salvation issue or the cultural challenge that is most pressing for our particular context. That's what I've tried to do. So the other thing about that is, if I don't cover any aspects of these doctrines that you'd like to hear more on, um, fill out a Care and Connect card. They're in your outline. Please fill those out. If you've got a question, a comment, a a query, depending on how many I get each week, I'll work out how to respond. I've got a couple of ideas of how that might look. But please, don't be afraid to do that. Right. Long but necessary intro and set up for the series ahead. Let's look at our first statement of belief. It's printed in your outline. Hopefully you picked one up. Um, I'm, I'm conscious that it's a, it's a pretty thick topic and there's lots of little headings there. Hopefully you've got a pen and, a, and um, yeah, hopefully you're able to stick with me. It's, uh, it's thick and it's good. But of all the things I could say about the Bible, of all the things I could say about it, I want to focus in on three things with, it, with you today. I want to co- notice that in our statement there are three aspects, are the necessity of the Bible, the authority of the Bible and the sufficiency of the Bible and I want to dig into those a little bit more starting with the necessity of the Bible. In fact, what I really want to do here is give you a crash course in epistemology. and that sounds like a swear word, I assure you it's not. It's a legitimate word. Epistemology simply refers to the theory of knowledge. Really, what we're saying here is, how do we know stuff? How do we know we know stuff? And more importantly, how do we know we know stuff that is true? That's epistemology. Now again, massive topic. I'm going to do it sort of basically here. There are, th- How do we know things? Well, basically, we know things and we learn things and we evaluate truth through a variety of different processes. The first one we call deduction. You have heard that before. We can know things, true things, by deduction, by deducing ideas based off other known truth. Mathematics works this way. I know that this is two. If that's two, then this is two. And when I add them together... I get four, okay? That's maths, that's logic, that's deduction. Are you with me? Try that on little kids. They, they go, "Wow, this is amazing. Logic, reason, these are making deductions. Think Sherlock Holmes. How did Sherlock Holmes know that the murderer was an older, left-handed person familiar to the family? Well, by deduction. The nature of injury suggests that the person inflicting them was using their left hand. The clump of grey hairs found in the victim's fist pulled out by the uh, short struggle, indicate an older gentleman or person, shall we say. The fact that the dog in the room didn't bark and wake the whole house meant the murderer, murderer was known to the family. It's elementary, dear Watson. You know the, okay? Deduction. And we all use deductions to learn and evaluate truths all the time. Though when it comes to truly knowing a person relationally, deduction is limited. I, I want to give you an example. Let's work an example uh, here together. Here's a person on the screen... What strict deductions can you make about the person? What strict statements of truth can you make only based on deduction, reason and logic that you have a reasonable degree of certainty are true? The truth is it's not stacks you can say. You can deduce the fact, there is a, you, can, you can deduce that his very existence requires the prior existence of at least two other people. That's a deductive fact. One male and one female. For him to be a real person, he needs he needs parents. That's logic. You can deduce that at least one of his parents, likely both of his parents, are Asian in origin. But other than that, deduction is not super helpful in getting to know this person relationally, personally. It's helpful, but it's not all the way helpful. So we move to the next knowledge system: not deduction now, but induction, or observation. By using our senses we can make certain observations with a high level of certainty. These are inductive truths. In fact let's use this same chap again next picture by observation we can say true things about this person we can say we can make statements about his height about his weight about his gender any of his physical features his profession maybe I reckon he looks a bit soft to me what do you doesn't look like he doesn't look no, I don't think he knows one end of a shovel from the other um, <clears throat> And if he were physically present, we could do all sorts of tests and make inductive or observational statements that would give us a fair certainty of truth. Induction, observation, they're helpful. But do you feel like you know this person yet? He's smaller than a tree. Well, that's helpful. (laughs) No, no, when it comes to relational knowledge, deduction and induction will only take us so far. What we need is a third way of knowing. We need revelation. Revelation. If we're going to ever be able to know, truly know this person about who they are, about what they think, about the potential relationship they have to us, we need this person to speak. We need this person to reveal things that we cannot otherwise know purely by observational deduction. It's revelation that we require. In fact, let me give you a work, the example. Play the clip. Oh, we need some sound for that. Play it again, Sam. Hang on, we've got some music playing out of the background. Can we can the music first?
0: <laughs> the Hello, Saints of Wagger Evangelical
1: Church. My name is Iggy Wong. I'm the lead pastor up here in Brisbane of Coots Plains Evangelical Church. I'm married to Lee I've got five kids. This is my youngest, Maya. This is the back of her head. She likes this position, so that's probably all you're going to be seeing <laughs> of her right now. I went to Bible College um, down in Sydney. College with none other than your new senior pastor, Tim Quinn. Got plenty of stories to tell. Uh, not all of them appropriate for right now. <laughs> God bless. It was nice joining you guys over the wonders of technology. <laughs> That's Iggy. I think he means not appropriate because of time constraints. That's what he means there. Um, <clears throat> he's a nice guy, that Iggy. He's always thinking two steps ahead. That's Iggy. That's Ignatius Wong. You wouldn't have known that unless he told you. He's a Christian guy. In fact, if you're a Christian here, he's your brother in Christ. That means you're going to spend eternity with this chap praising God for his magnificence, fresh each day. He prays for us here in Wagga. He's concerned about you and about, you, about how you understand and relate to God. You would know, have known none of this unless he revealed it to you. Revelation is very important as a means of knowing and learning true things and we rely on revelation... We rely on this to know true stuff that shapes our behaviour all the time. Deduction, induction, revelation. And it's not just with relationships that revelation is helpful. Let me just quickly give you another example. Uh, Really, really quickly. Why do I take paracetamol when I've got a headache? I tell you, it's not because I've done all the research firsthand. I've done no observational studies on analgesics. I wouldn't know where to begin to do deductive research into the effectiveness of these things for pain relief. But somewhere, somewhere... Someone along the line had worked this out from first principles and noticed the effect of paracetamol on pain. And they revealed it to someone else who revealed it to someone else who re- and so on down the line until it was revealed to me by the fount of all wisdom, my mum. And this was given to me by revelation. I took it and the results matched with my experience and my reason. So in time now that I have a headache, I take paracetamol. Revelation was primary to gain this knowledge. My rationale, my logic, my observation, my experience were supporting and confirming systems. And so I've arrived at a truth claim about paracetamol. And I'm fully persuaded of it. Do you see how epistemology works? Deduction, induction, revelation, all combining to get truth. And now I I labour this point and I make it because it's the same that can be said about God. We can know certain things about God by deduction and observation. From creation, for example. Deductively, the fact that there is anything means that there's always been something. That's a statement of logic and fact, yes? And if that's so, that something must be eternal. That eternal something must be the source of all else. It must be a non-caused cause, the primary cause. And if it's personal, it must be unimaginably huge, powerful, creative, brilliant, every superlative you can think of in a positive direction. We can say that from deduction and, and induction, from observation, as we look at the world that's, been, that's created around us. But besides that, there's not stacks we can say with any certainty. In fact, this is why there are so many religions in the world. It's one of those questions I always just get asked as a scripture teacher. Why are there so many religions? If there's only one God, then why are there so many religions? Well, it's because of deduction and observation. (laughs) Every civilization has come to the conclusion, based on deduction and observation, of a something, of a God or gods that must exist outside of time, space and matter. But without that something revealing itself, without revelation, every attempt or... Yeah, to know or relate to this something is just speculative it 's a best guess, if you will, Allah, many religions, and so therefore it 's why the first aspect that I want you to see about the Bible is its necessity. The Bible is necessary; it is god 's self revelation to humanity it 's a progressive revelation in that it 's through the history of a particular nation his of his creatures, the Hebrew people, God has revealed himself, culminating and finish finishing his revelation in the the one man, Jesus Christ, the full and final revelation of God. In fact, we heard this as Hannah read it out to us in Hebrews 1, 1 1-4. Let me read it again. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. God's always been about revelation. Do you see that? God's always been in the business of revealing himself through the prophets many times, various ways, says the writer to the Hebrews. In fact, we see terrific examples of this all through the Bible. Let me take you to one. Come with me there to Exodus 3. If you're a Bible flicker, by all means, flick there. Otherwise, it should be on the screen. Exodus 3, what happens in Exodus 3? You've got Moses, he's, out, he's fled Egypt, he's on the lamb and now he's on the lambs. He's tending some sheep in media and he's observed a bush that's on fire. That's odd. But what's even more odd is the fact that the bush is not burning up, verse 2. So he rightly deduces this is abnormal and goes in for a closer look, verse 3. But until that moment of revelation... Moses is unable to understand the truth of what is really going on here. He's used his induction. He's used his uh, deduction. But until revelation happens, he doesn't understand. Until verse 6, when God spoke to Moses from within the bush and revealed himself, and he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And only then did Moses realize the right significance of the moment and hide his face in fear. God's self-revelation was key to Moses' Thinking, feeling, and then acting rightly in the scenario. God's revelation, self-revelation, was absolutely necessary. And the wonderful news is that God continually did this. That's what I mean by progressive revelation. He can digi- continually did this more and more about himself through this line of people, through the history of that nation that come to be known as Israel, up until the full and final revelation of himself in the person and work of his son, Jesus who notice in verse uh, Hebrews 1, verse 3, Did you notice who Jesus is? He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Do you know what that means? In other words, if you want to know who God is, if you want to know what he's like or how to relate to him properly, you must look at, you must look to, you must listen to Jesus. That's who God is, full stop. The necessity of God's revelation is fulfilled here. Now we're going to spend We're going to spend a lot of time talking about Jesus in this series, but right now we're focusing in on the Bible. And the reason the Bible is so fundamental to this series and to the necessity of God's revelation to humans is because it is the mechanism that God has determined to use, to codify and standardize and reveal everything you need to know about Jesus. In fact, here is why we need to actually move to our next key aspect of the Bible. It's the next one. It's not just the necessity of the Bible through revelation. It's the authority of the Bible. The necessity of of revelation, the fact that it's all bound up in the Bible that reveals Jesus, that reveals God, that means the Bible must be the bedrock or the supreme authority to evaluate anything else we can say about God or any other topic in this doctrine series. The Bible must be the bedrock. It must have the highest authority. That means practically again, how does that flow out? It means that if we disagree on any theological issue or faith issue, and we might, we must agree to come back to the authority of the Bible because that's where God has revealed himself. That's where he's uh, revealed his promises, his expectations, his future plans. In fact, it's there in our statement of belief printed in your outline. Have a look. The last clause of point one, the Bible has supreme authority. In matters of faith, conduct, and experience. No- notice there that this, this statement uses the phrase supreme authority. That's very deliberate. It's written that way to rightly acknowledge, acknowledge that it's not the only authoritative system that you might use to make decisions or evaluate truth, like we saw in the kids' talk. You'll rightly use your ability to reason or to think critically at times to make decisions and evaluate truth. You will. You'll use your life experience to make decisions and evaluate truth. You'll use the wisdom of others handed down through the ages, traditions, if you will, to make decisions and evaluate truth. But when it comes to matters of God, when it comes to matters of faith, conduct and experience, the Bible must have the supreme authority over your logic or your ability to think it through, over your personal experience, over your tradition. The Bible, as God's necessary revelation, must be number one. And this is important. This is important. Again, realise this. Something has got to be your bedrock. Something will inevitably hold the position of supreme authority for you. You realise that, don't you? Something's got to be, that, that you know, when you can't dig down any further, when you hit solid ground and this is this is what I'm standing on, something's got to be, what is it? And how do we know that the supreme authority, bedrock, ought to be the Bible? The answer to this is going to sound strange at one level, but let me just keep with me here. The Bible must be the supreme authority on anything else we say about God, anything we say about people, even about the Bible itself, because the Bible comes with God's own authority. We read it there in 2 Timothy 3.16. Have a look there. Let me just pick up the one verse that Hannah read for us. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and entraining in righteousness, so the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Why must the Bible be the supreme authority? Because the Bible says it's the supreme authority. Because it is the very words of God. Literally, God breathed. Therefore, carries all his authority, all the weight with it. Now, if you're listening carefully at this moment, you should be doing these ones. (laughs) You should be going, hang on. It's a rather circular argument, Tim. Anyone thinking this? You should be. It's a pretty circular argument. The Bible is the supreme authority because the Bible says it's the supreme authority. Doesn't sound very good. Yes? Please be thinking that. You must. But can I also say, it can't be any other way. In fact, this is an inevitable, unavoidable uh, fact whenever we're trying to establish supreme authority. You will always, unavoidably, end up with a circular argument. Let me show you how that works. If you say to me that your personal experience, is the supreme authority for determining truth in life, I'm going to ask you why you say that. And you're going to be forced to say what? I believe this because my personal experience has led me to believe this. It's a circular argument. And at this point you go, hang on, I'm a bit cagey here. I'm going to change tack. No, 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 no. Supreme authority, personal experience is my supreme authority because science and rationale have proven it to be the most reliable means of truth. You just contradicted yourself. You just broke the rules of the game because you've just appealed to a different supreme authority to justify and ground your claim that personal experience is your supreme authority. You've essentially appealed to an apparent higher authority, the authority of science and reason, at which point... That must be your supreme authority. And I'll ask you, why do you say that? And you'll say to me, do you see where we're going? Merry-go-round time, round and round we go. Science and rationale is... Because science and rationale allows me to believe. No, that's circular. The same is true of the Bible. Don't get me wrong. If I said the Bible is the supreme authority because the oldest creeds of the Christian church have taught me that, I've just made tradition the functional supreme authority. Do you see this? I've just undercut the Bible's own authority. If I can actually be quite frank here, this is the problem of the Catholic Church. It's not that Catholic folk don't love God's word or consider it to be the uh, authority of His word, they just hold to tradition as well. Fine and dandy until they oppose. At many points, they do. Tell me, why do Catholic priests not marry? Is it biblical? Heck no, (laughs) it's a tradition. And so when this clashes, what do they do? They uphold the tradition. They've effectively made tradition the supreme authority. That's a problem. If I said that the Bible is the supreme authority because it's worked out best for me to act this way in my life, I've just made my personal experience the functional supreme authority and I've undercut the authority of the Bible itself. This is the problem of a lot of charismatic theology where personal experience becomes the, the litmus test for what I think is true and right and reasonable. I still love the Bible, but when my experience clashes with what the Bible says, I go with the experience. I've just made it functionally. the You see what I'm doing here? But if the Bible is the supreme authority on matters of faith and conduct and experience, then it must stand to reason that it can only be true on the basis of the authority of the Bible. It's unavoidably circular. Circular reasoning works because... Circular reasoning works... Because circular reasoning works, because it's, <laughs> it's not wrong, it's unavoidable. But there's more to it than that. In fact, I don't think we have to be worried by this. In fact, the strength of this argument for the authority of the Bible doesn't negate the sources, the other sources of authority. In fact, this is really helpful. In a, in a helpful, affirming, reasonable way, anchoring the authority of the Bible in itself as God's revealed word actually helps to make most sense of my rationale and my experience and my traditions. Anchoring authority outside of myself, and let's be honest, away from my natural inconsistencies and my inevitable selfish desires and motives, is a necessary good thing. It's what actually Paul was mentioning to Timothy when he said, watch your life and doctrine carefully. Why? Because there will come a time... When people will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. In fact, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will not put up with sound doctrine. My propensity for self-deception is second to none. I'm not sure you're any different. The Bible writers were aware of this as well. They were aware of this principle even as they wrote scripture. In fact, have a look at this one on the screen. 1, no, 2 Peter, 2 Peter 1. 2 Peter 1, I'll I'll paraphrase sort of 16 to 20. He says this, basically, for the sake of time, yeah, I'll I'll paraphrase it. Uh, Though Peter speaks of his own personal experience with Jesus, verse 16, he says, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. You see, that personal experience is important. It is significant. It is good. And though he also appeals to the traditions of the prophets' writings that have been handed down to him, verse 19, he says, And we have the words of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it. As to a light shining in a dark place, tradition is helpful. And yet for all their help, Peter doesn't anchor the authority of the revelation of God's word anywhere else than by his spirit. In fact, have a look at verse 20 what does he say he says above all above all you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation for prophecy never had its origin in the will of men but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit God breathed yes it was real men with real personalities with real pens writing on real paper or papyrus and as they were doing so, they were conscious of what they were doing and yet it was God's spirit working through them, carrying them along. And the beauty of this, folks, is as you read the Bible, if you, as you read it to understand and to recognise it as God's authority of word, it does not depend on you working this out or giving it your own thumbs up or stamp of approval based on your own contradictory authority sources. No, no, it re- relies on God revealing the authority of his word to you so that you might use your rationale, that you might understand your personal experience and that you might be able to critique tradition in line with his words and his ways. The Bible's authority becomes self-authenticating as God, by his Spirit, reveals to individuals the internal consistency and in the power of his word. Tell me, have you ever heard of a Christian that, uh, that became so without either reading or hearing the Bible taught for themselves? Why is that? Because God's word does its work every time so let me boil it down here really quickly if I was to boil down what we believe about the authority of the bible into a simple sentence I'd go with something like this Wayne Grudem wrote this in his book systematic theology it's really good he said this he said the authority of the bible is such that to disagree disbelieve or disobey any word of scripture is to disagree disbelieve and disobey God himself be, be clear on this. I'm not going to be personally offended if you reject the Bible's authority or the Bible's teaching. They're not my ideas. <laughs> They're God's. He's the one you ought to be worried about at that point. Which again means in practice. Let's go again. We don't just want to do the, just the raw head stuff. What does this mean in practice? Do you know what it means in practice? It means that in practice, if I am wrong about anything in the Bible, would you please correct me biblically? And I, and I genuinely mean that. Would you help me to let scripture interpret scripture because that is the only sensible, safe way to understand and relate to God. If you hear something that you don't like, don't tell me it's wrong because you don't like it. Don't tell me it's wrong because an angel delivered to you a personal message that was different from what the Bible God has spoken through his word. Don't tell me it's wrong because... Well, the church that you went to before taught something different. No, no, no. Any of those examples would be to put the supreme authority in something other than God's word. But feel free to correct me biblically. That's what 2 Timothy 3.16 is all about, about using God's breathed word to teach, rebuke, correct and train. And I want you to feel free to do that for me. In fact, I would like you to love me enough to do that for me when I err, which I will And my pledge is to do likewise for you. God's word is necessary and it is authoritative. And it must be scripture that interprets scripture. God's word interprets God's word. It's not a matter of this verse against this verse. It's these verses. (laughs) Now I was planning to do a third aspect of the sufficiency of the Bible, but I've had to do a bit of a radical cut down back to just a couple of statements just to chew on over maybe a bit later. So not only is the Bible necessary to know God, and not only is it supreme in its authority, uh, in its, authority, it's also sufficient. That is, what I mean by that is, it contains everything we need to know. Let me say that again. It contains everything we need to know God rightly and to respond to him appropriately. The scripture is sufficient means it contains everything we need to know God rightly and respond to him appropriately. Now that's a true statement. But I hope that you were a little winced when you heard that. <laughs> I hope your gut just tightened just that little bit, and you went, hang on. Because left just at that, it makes the Bible seem unhelpfully mechanistic. What I mean, it, it makes the Bible sound like a cookbook. You know, I've just got to follow the recipe. This plus this plus this equals that, and it'll all be okay. No, that's not quite right. 2 Timothy says, the Bible, or the, the scripture is there, it is sufficient everything you need to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It's sufficient. It's sufficient to correct, rebuke, train. It's all about sound doctrine. It's sufficient. God's word is sufficient. But I know plenty of people who have read the Bible cover to cover and they still aren't Christians. So what's going on? Let me just use one little illustration to help you uh, work this out. It would be a bit like if I gave you an IKEA flat pack. With all the tools and the instructions necessary to build the whatever furniture it is. But if I gave it to you in a pitch black room, or worse still, you shut your eyes and couldn't open them, technically speaking, you'd have everything you need to build the furniture. But without the eyes to see or the light to illuminate, you'll only build your best guess. So it is with God, and so it is with His Word. It is sufficient but we need him, we need God to supply the light and the eyes of faith to see him properly in it. But that's for another sermon. <laughs> in fact, I hope you can see something here already that is apparent. When we do a series like this, a series of statements of belief, we can't talk about the, uh, a doctrine or a belief about the Bible without necessarily talking about God, without talking about his spirit, without talking about salvation. Do you see that? It's unavoidable. That's, and That's right and proper and good. It means that we, what we say here affects what we say here, here, and here, and here. That's what I mean when I say I'm not going to be able to say everything in one setting. We've just got to this point of illumination by the Spirit. That's going to be like week six. So you've got to come back week six and in between. But here, this is where we're going to leave it for today. Just to, re, just to reiterate, not everything um, is said, but the things, the couple of central points about what we believe about the Bible is that it's, it's necessary. It's God's necessary revelation. It contains all his authority. comes with his authority. And it is sufficient to know him truly. If it's not your supreme authority here today, folks, in matters of faith, conduct and experience, you need to make the switch. That's what you do with this. And if it is already your supreme authority, then you need to praise God for his generous provision and ask that we might walk in line with him. That's what we're going to do right now as we pray before we sing. Let me pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We do thank you that is the necessary means of uh, knowing you personally as you reveal yourself in the personal work of Jesus. We thank you that as the, the people who wrote the Bible, as they wrote, they won't just write in their best guess, but that you, by your spirit, you breathed your word through their pens, through their personalities, that what we might have in our Bibles today is useful for everything we need to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, useful for teaching and correcting and rebuking and training in righteousness. And we thank you that it is sufficient as such, Father. And yet at the same time we acknowledge that without your spirit in us, without your light to illuminate to our eyes and to our hearts and to our minds, it will just be words on a page. Father, we pray that it wouldn't be that for anyone here that by your great grace, by your mercy and your love for us, that you would help us to see in your word Christ and the magnificence of being known by him and being made forgiven friends of you through him. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.